You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Genesis chapter 34 is where we are going to be this evening, or where we'll be starting, I should say. Genesis chapter 34. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis. We are actually really and truly ending the, in, nearing the end of our study of the book of Genesis. We're getting closer and closer. And tonight we're going to be moving through chapter 34, chapter 35, chapter 36, and chapter 38. And why we are skipping 37, I will explain to you as we get to it in just a little bit. But if you're taking notes tonight, the title for this message is Jacob's Journey, Part 4. Jacob's journey, part four, as we continue to see Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, well, he's going to continue to show us in the book of Genesis what the beginnings look like. That's what the theme of Genesis is, beginnings, because we see the literal beginnings of everything within the book of Genesis. And we know that this book is broken down into, four, into two, two sections, both outlining four great events or four great men, four great events we see in Genesis 1 through 11, and four great men we're seeing currently in Genesis 12 through 50. And tonight, as we study, we will end, at least for a while, the spotlight on Jacob's life in the biblical narrative. You know, over the past few weeks, we have seen Jacob's life from birth to manhood, from being a part of his father Isaac's camp to being really a fugitive running from his murderous brother Esau who sought after his life. And we have seen Jacob as he's moved about the country. We've seen him hear from the Lord. We've seen him have the favor of the Lord, the protection of the Lord upon his life. And yet we have also seen him scheme and resist the Lord. Most famously, we saw last week that Jacob and his now very large family, as they moved away from his father-in-law Laban's house, that we saw there that a meeting was imminent between himself and his brother Esau. And Jacob was afraid, no doubt, to meet Esau, still thinking that he wanted to do him harm. And so we saw Jacob go back into the scheming, go back into his, his old way of thinking, and what did we see there, one of this pinnacle moment of Jacob's life, as he's waiting the night before meeting Esau, well, he wrestled all night with a man. A man came and wrestled with him, and we discovered and discussed that that man was the Lord, that it was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus there wrestling with, with, with Jacob. And as he wrestled with him, it was really an outward showing of the inward struggle that Jacob had going on, where Jacob there had a struggle of, wanting, of needing to surrender to the Lord but yet wanting to bank on his own sufficiency, his own effort and merit. And if you were with us, you'll remember that it ended with Jacob prevailing in his losing. He prevailed in his losing, that when he was at, his, at the moment when the Lord was like, I need to go, the sun is coming up, that all Jacob could do was hold on to the Lord because the Lord, well, he had popped his hip out of sockets. And we remember there that he said, don't depart from me unless you bless me. And it was in that moment that Jacob went from being Jacob the schemer to Israel, the one who wrestled with God and prevailed, the one who prevailed again in his defeat, in his surrender. It was a great time last week seeing that move through, move through the text. And we ended last week, if you remember, with him preparing to go and meet with Esau, and I gave that to you for homework. And I trust that you all read chapter 33 on your own. If you did not, well, then you fail, but that's okay. We will briefly talk about it in a bit to recap everyone up. 
But what we have before us tonight, as we open up in chapter 34, is a bit of a dark story to read. Actually, it's absolutely a dark story. And there will be several of those tonight as we move through the narrative. Where we open up tonight, you see, with the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, in some trouble with the men in the country that, that they are staying in. And her unfortunate situation, well, it's followed, unfortunately, by a response from Jacob and his sons that is not representative of men who are following the Lord's. And so we're going to read tonight all of chapter 34 to get us going and to get it out of the way, quite honestly. And we're going to read the text, we're going to pray together, and then we will unpack it together as well. So you should be there. Genesis 34, verse 1 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. And his soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman, and he spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and now his sons were with his livestock in the fields. So Jacob, he held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which not ought to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gifts, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. In their words, they pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city, he did Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their city had been defiled, their sister had been defiled. 
And they took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, and what was in their city and what was in the field and all their wealth and all the little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in their houses. But then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for your words. And Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here, Lord. I thank you, God, for the freedom we have, the invitation from you, God, to be here and to get into your word. And Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the truth of your word, that we can know that your word, though it is hard at times to read and disturbing even to read, that God, it is still your word. And what we can do is take it to know that, God, you want to teach us. And so, Lord, I ask and pray tonight that you would teach us, that you would be our teacher, and you would lead us tonight into the truth of your word, that we may know how to apply it to our lives and walk according to your word. And Lord, I'm so thankful that as I pray that, I pray it expectantly, knowing that you are faithful. You are faithful to speak. You're faithful to lead. And I ask God that you would lead us now as we continue to study. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this chapter contains one of the most shameful events in all of the Bible, both of those who are following the Lord and these that we see in the text that are not followers of the Lord. And for you note-takers tonight, what we really see through this chapter is trouble for Jacob. Trouble for Jacob that honestly is brought on his family by his own actions. And the reason I say that, understand, has to deal with the location that he has his family in to, to kind of clarify and set up the setting for our study tonight. When you read Genesis 33, which again, I assume that you all did. Last week, that was assigned to you. We, you see some amazing things. You see first this amazing reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Again, Jacob is terrified of this meeting. He's sent, you'll remember, gift after gift, wave after wave. He has split his family so that if Esau attacked, that they could run and retreat. And he was afraid of this meeting. But yet he was blessed in that when Esau met him, Esau met him not in a murderer ready, as a murderer ready to get him, but as a brother ready to embrace him. And there's an amazing story to see there. But what we see there at the end of that is we see as the ending verses of that chapter come before us, we have this transition really of a life event and a location for Jacob and his camp. The verses will be on the screen from Genesis 33 and verses 18 through 20. It says, then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and he called it Elohi Israel. You see, Jacob here, upon meeting and reconciling and then traveling a short while with his brother Esau, the chapter shows us that as Esau went one way, well, Jacob went the opposite. And we see that Jacob, he moves his very large family, he moves his camp there into the land of Shechem, and he doesn't just, we know, set up a camp. No, what he does is he buys land, he builds and establishes a livelihood there in that region. And though it seems on the surface level like all is good as you read it, there is a significant problem for Jacob as we read this. You see, Jacob is not supposed to be in Shechem. Jacob, in fact, is supposed to be in Bethel. In Genesis chapter 31, you'll remember that that was the chapter where the Lord comes there to Jacob. 
and he speaks to him. Jacob has a desire to get out of Laban's household, and he's been working for Laban another six years so as to be able to move out of his household. And there in chapter 31, you'll remember that the Lord said to him in verse 3, that says, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family. I will be with you. Again, coupled with Jacob's desire to get out, the Lord, after he had prepped him and prepared him practically, he comes to him and says, hey, Jacob, it's time to go. It's time to get up. It's time to go. And so the Lord spoke to him and he readied himself to go. And you'll remember that a few verses later, that as Jacob is speaking to his wives and telling them, hey, it's time for us to go, that he relays to them a dream that he received from the Lord, where it said there in Genesis 31, 13, that the Lord spoke to Jacob saying, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. So now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. You see, as God introduced himself there and instructed Jacob to go back home, it is significant that he mentioned that he is the God of Bethel. It was indicative there, it was this description and this direction there given to Jacob not to go as he is in Shechem, but to go to Bethel and to not stop until he gets there. But instead of going to Bethel, to the place that God met him, to the place that God instructed him to go to, what we see here is he stops, get this, about 20 miles away from his destination. He stops short about 20 miles of his instructed goal, and he doesn't, as we said, he doesn't just stop over for the night. Again, 20 miles is what the Bible would say is a day's journey. It's not like he's camping in Shechem, preparing for that last haul. He's not refueling. He's not resupplying. No, he buys land. He stays there for an extended amount of time. See, Jacob is in Shechem when he is supposed to be in Bethel, and it's his being in in Shechem understand that causes issues for his family, that causes issues. Notice the progression again of, the cha- of this chapter's events. We see there that in verse 1, it says that Dinah, his daughter that, he was, that was born to him by Leah, what does she do? It says she goes out to see the daughters of the lands. And you could translate this, in fact, that Dinah actually went out to be seen by the daughters of the land. Basically, she wanted to go see what was going on. She wanted to go see and be seen in that land. And we see there in verse 2 that she was definitely seen. She was seen by the ruler of that land, Hamor's son, by the name of Shechem. This guy comes out and he takes her, the Bible says, lays with her and violates her. Quite plainly, he rapes her. And Shechem asks Hamor, we see in verses 3 through 4, as he has this desire for her after this, this, this lustful, perhaps affectionate to some degree, but overly passionate desire for her, he says to his dad, hey, get me this woman. Let's, let's get this woman for me, that she can be my wife. I want her. And Hamor, he says, let's do that. Let's absolutely do that. To where we see there in verses 5 through 12, they approach Jacob. And it's here that it gets really, really, uh, uh, really we see this bummer of a light that Jacob is in. Because as Jacob, we see, learns of Dinah's defilements and is met by Shechem and Hamor, what we notice is that he is deathly silent. He's silent as they come to meet with him. He is silent as they come and say, hey, we want to join with you. We want to be family with you. My son wants your daughter. And Jacob, what does he do? He stands there silently until his sons arrive. And then even after that, he is silent because we see in verses 13 through 17 that his sons answer Shechem and Hamor. And they answer him with anger. And they also answer him, the Bible says, with deceit. They answer him deceitfully. And we see there that they tell him, hey, we love to join with you. 
They're lying through their teeth. They say, we'd love to join with you, but we can't. Because as you see, you are uncircumcised and we can't join with those that are uncircumcised. And so they say, if you and all of the city will be circumcised, hey, we can make this work. And so they go and they do that. It says that Shechem, that he was, again, he was more honorable than all of his household. This guy, understand that even in this moment, him being pagan and apart from the Lord, he has the moral high ground here. He is honorable in his actions. He's honorable in saying, yeah, I'll honor this this pact that you want to go through. Right now, Jacob and his sons, they have the moral low grounds. And they continue to have it as the men, it says there in verses 25 through 29, as the men of Shechem, three days after they circumcise all of the men of the city, it says that Simeon and Levi, what do they do? They take their swords, they go upon the city, and they kill every single man. And many scholars believe that it's anywhere from 250 to 300 men that they go in and they murder. As they're laid up and they're sore, they go in and they murder them. And then what's more is we see that the rest of the sons of Jacob, what do they do? They come upon the city of Shechem and they plunder it. They take the riches. They take the people, it says. We see that in verses 25 through 29. And after all of this, what do we see in verse 30? Do we see Jacob turn it around and say, oh, you know, this was sin and rebuke them in a godly manner? No. No, we don't see it at all. What Jacob tells him, he says, you have made me obnoxious. You've made me obnoxious in the sight of the people. Basically, what he's telling them is, hey, guys, because of you, I've got a target on my back now. Because of you, we are in danger. My life is in danger. Forget what happened to your sister. My life is in danger. Jacob is right back into seeking after his own. And his kids, at this point, they hold the high, the high ground. In verse 31, as they tell him, hey, look, no one should treat, our, should treat our sister this way. No one should treat our sister like a harlot. And this is an absolute mess. Again, this chapter is an absolute mess that the family of Jacob is in, that the family of Jacob honestly causes here. And it's a mess that is far-reaching. In fact, just to look ahead a bit into tonight and into our study in Genesis, something we're going to see tonight is the first four boys that were born to Jacob by Leah, well, every single one of them tonight are going to blow it in some big way. Every one of them, we're going to see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. They are all going to have some major failures within the text that we're going to be studying tonight. And Simeon and Levi, they get theirs right here. And their sins of reacting in the way that they did, they cause issues, not just in the here and now of the text, but also in the future for their tribes. You know, in a few weeks as we get to the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, Jacob is still alive. And Jacob, he gets to there see his sons in Egypt. And before he dies, he blesses his sons in Genesis 49. And as he blesses them, or really as he blesses them, some of them he quite honestly curses because that's what we see. Well, he has something to say about how their tribes in the future are going to look. And for Simeon and Levi, he groups them together. In Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, these verses will be on the screen. He says there, Simeon and Levi are brothers instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united by their assembly. These are harsh words. For in their anger, they slew a man. In their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. So cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Again, what Jacob is doing here in this setting, we will study it more as we get to it, is he's letting the guys know, hey, this is what your future generations, what they're going to look like, the tribes that you will go on to father, this is what will become of them. 
And for Simeon, quite honestly, we're going to see this tribe go on to have no real existence as a tribe in Israel's future. And Levi, quite honestly, the father of the tribe of Levi, well, the only reason that they actually have any standing within the nation of Israel, that they become the tribe of Levi, the Levites who minister before the Lord, is because they're in the book of Exodus, after the golden calf incident, well, they side with Moses. As Moses draws a line in the sand and says, hey, if you are for the Lord, then come to this side. It's the tribe of Levi that says, we are for the Lord, and they go on his side. And that's where they find redemption, quite honestly. You see, their sin has repercussions that flow not just upon the family in the present, but generations after them. But again, as I said earlier, we look to the overarching of the story. And I submit to you that the events that took place here that they are a direct result of Jacob not being where God told him to be in the first place. Again, God told Jacob explicitly to go to Bethel, but he instead stopped in Shechem. See, Jacob did not fully obey the Lord's orders for his family. And a direct result of that was a mess, the events that we see take place here. You know, the term, and for you note takers, you can write this down, that incomplete obedience is disobedience, it is a very real thing. And it is absolutely in play here within this story. And in our relationship with the Lord, understand the call for every believer, we've said this before, and the Bible says this explicitly, the call for every believer is complete obedience, total surrender. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that we're to present our lives as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices, they're burned up completely. Living sacrifices are offered completely. That's what the call is for every single believer. That is the call always. And understand that as I say that, the opposite of our complete surrender, the incomplete surrender, the incomplete, diso- the incomplete obedience, which is disobedience, understand anytime we are not in the place that God has for us, well, just as we see here in this story time, anytime we are outside of the will of God, anytime we stop short of his perfect will and of his instruction, we can expect problems. We can expect issues. We can expect things to come at us and in us because we are vulnerable and sin, well, creeps in and is very easily able to gain a stronghold. I mean, just take a look again at what Jacob Jacob had to deal with here because he was not where he's supposed to be. His daughter was not in a place of safety. Like just practically speaking, he moved his, his family to Shechem, this place that was ruled by these people who did not follow the Lord's. And he moves his family here and his daughter Dinah there at the age that she could be married as she goes wandering about, which again, Jacob's not necessarily accountable for, but still in the same, he provided for her to do so. Well, he kept her in a place that was unsafe and all kinds of temptation of the men of the land saw her and of course went and she had all kinds of temptation as well. But then Jacob as well, looking back at him after his daughter is violated, as he's confronted there by Shechem and by Hamor, notice again, he has no authority to stand on because he wasn't in the place that he belonged. He had not completely obeyed the Lord. He was not able to confront them, but he was silent. He had to be silent. And Jacob also didn't have control of his family. He wasn't in a place of authority to deal with his sons who were going and doing what they were doing, the deceit that they had, the actions they performed. They couldn't have happened without Jacob knowing about it. But yet they had an example in dear old dad to see that, hey, you know what? Anything goes. Dad didn't listen to the Lord. We're here in this place. Dad let this stuff happen. So we're going to do what needs to be done. All because, again, of incomplete obedience to the Lord. There were consequences. 
And the same is true for us. That if you and I, if we are not in the place and space where God has called us, and understand, we, we speak about this often, that God has created each and every single one of us for a purpose, a purpose to glorify Him, to walk with Him in a relationship and on mission with Him. And there is a will that God has for each and every one of us, a direction, a place, and a space that God calls us to occupy. And if we, in our lives, in our relationships, in our vocation, in our sanctification, in our dealing with sin, in our dealing with, with walking in this world, in our serving in the church, if we are not where God is calling us, if we stop short, then we can expect problems. We can expect the same types of problems that Jacob sees here. Maybe not identical to them, of course, but the same things that Jacob suffered, we will suffer as well. Our growth is stagnated, friends. If you're not completely obeying the Lord and seeking after Him, you won't grow as a Christian. Your ministry will stop. Your ministry will be halted or, or worse, I would say, done wrongly. So oftentimes we seek to obey the Lord just a bit. Perhaps you have a sin that you know God is calling you out of. There's a relationship that you're in or a sin that you're hiding and holding on to. And you know the Lord is saying, hey, you need to deal with that. You need to cut that out because I want to use you. But yet you say, no, I can still serve you, Lord. I can still serve you and still hold on to this sin. I can still serve you and walk in this relationship. Understand that you will not only be stagnated, but the people that you seek to serve, they'll be ripped off or worse, they'll be hurt. Because that's what happens. When we don't completely obey the Lord totally and completely with our lives, our usefulness with the Lord is hindered. Our authority in our lives, our ability to lead is compromised. Just in the same way we see with Jacob here. He was not able to lead his family appropriately because he was not fully in with the Lord. We are so much more open for attacks from the enemy. We are so much more in a vulnerable state and so much less of a use to the Lord, friends, when we don't obey completely. And this story right here shows us that. This mess right here is so representative of what a mess our lives can be when we don't completely submit to the Lord. And again, this chapter is a mess. It's a mess here, and it's a mess that we're seeing. Again, some parts of the Bible are hard to read. You're like, why is this story in here? Because God wants to speak to us. God wants to speak, and He wants to lead our lives away from this. And also, too, what He wants to show us is that though this evil happened, though this is happening, well, God is still great. His grace is still great, and He is able still to work. And that's what we see. That's what we see as we learn the lesson from chapter 34, we move now to chapter 35. Where after we see Jacob's trouble, we now see Jacob's return. Really wrapped up within it, we see his obedience finally to the Lord's as we open up in chapter 35. So pick it with me there in verse 1, if you will. Where it said, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. And so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him 
And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, she died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was Alan Bachshuth. And then God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am the God, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Where chapter 34, if you notice as we read it, doesn't have one mention of the Lord or the name of the Lord. Chapter 35 opens up with God speaking directly to Jacob and clearly giving him instruction. And it really kind of makes me wonder, like, like through all of their time in Shechem, which it was believed to be an extended period of time, a number of years that they were there, I wonder how often the Lord came to Jacob and was like, hey man, you, you haven't gone all the way. How many times did God come to Jacob and say, hey, you're not where you belong, you need to move on. Just kind of food for thought because God definitely as we stay in places and spaces where we're not supposed to be, He'll speak to us. He'll remind us. Again, God will mess with our gig as we are in sin, as we are not fully obeying. And we see that He speaks. And for whatever reason, as He speaks here, Jacob, well, we see Him respond. And really, for you note-takers, what we see here is Jacob has a revival of sorts. Notice that as the Lord speaks to Jacob, He says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. God is direct here, and I love this. God is direct and very specific in his instruction to Jacob. God leaves no room. I love this, and we should take note of this. God leaves no room in his authoritative speaking to Jacob as to what he desires. He says, I want you to go to Bethel. I want you to go to Bethel. He doesn't leave room for Jacob's own interpretation, for his own desire. He speaks directly to him and says, get up, get out, go where I told you. And unlike chapter 34, we see Jacob's response. I love this. Jacob, what does he do? He assumes leadership in his home again. There we see in verses two through four, he calls for his kids. He says, all right, you can imagine this family meeting. He calls them together. He's like, all right, all the false gods, all the things that you plundered from Shechem, perhaps, all the things that are in this house that do not belong. He says, collect them. We're getting them out of here. All the foreign gods, they need to be done. He calls for purification of themselves. He calls them to change their garments, this, this symbolizing of an inward change shown outwardly. And he tells the family to arise and go to Bethel. And the family, they obey. It's an amazing thing to see here. That is Jacob, as he submits to the Lord and says, I'm going to go where God calls me, he's able to lead his family. His family follows suits. What's more is there in verses 5 through 7, God protects them as they're on their way. I love this because you'll remember that Jacob, he was fearful. Jacob was fearful there as he knew that a target was painted on his back. And no doubt as God came to him, Jacob, this schemer, this one who always looked out for himself, he would have struggled. He would have struggled with knowing that he was in danger, that he was vulnerable. 
But yet we see that he obeys anyways. He knows the word of God. He knows the instruction of the Lord. So he steps out in faith and God protects him the entire way. Verses five through seven show us that. Verse eight gives us a little window into some practical things of the life. We see Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies somewhere along the way. Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, comes into their company. She dies here and we see that within the word of God. And then we move on because what we see after that is in verses nine through 15, God appears yet again to Jacob. And he again reaffirms the covenant and the name change of Jacob from Jacob to Israel. And that's such a great thing for us to see because, again, as we've talked about with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and as we talked about with many other biblical examples, it is so amazing to see that even in the failure, even after the failure, that God is still there to meet us. God is still there to meet us and to reaffirm to us that he is working and wants to use us and lead us. Yes, there are consequences still for our sin. Those are unavoidable. But yet what we know is the Lord is faithful. And as Jacob is in obedience to the Lord, back where the Lord has him, he's able to lead his family, able to travel in safety, confident of God being with him. And God, again, he meets him. And it is so significant and so important for us to realize, friends, that being where the Lord is calling us, being in line with his word and in line with his will, that that's the best place for us. And I know that that is so elementary. It is so elementary for me tonight to tell you, hey, don't be where God doesn't want you to be and be where God wants you to be because that's the best place to be. But my friends, we need to hear that. We have to hear that basic principle that where God has called us, what God is instructing us to do, that is the best place and the best thing for us to walk in. Because that's the place where we experience the blessing of the Lord. But that's also where we're able to lead and be the most effective. That's what we see here with Jacob. As he submits to the Lord saying, get up and move out of this place and go to Bethel, follow my instructions. Notice he's able to lead his family again. Husbands, fathers, this is a word to us. A major word to us where we effectively are only able to effectively lead our families as we are serving and seeking the Lord's. If you are a husband or a father, that is the only place where you are able to authoritatively lead your family is when you and me, when we are submitted to God, when we read our Bibles and when we pray every single day, make that a priority, we're able to lead. If we don't, we're not. And it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Wives and mothers in the room, same thing, same thing. Though I can't speak with experience to your role because I'm a man, I know that the principle is the same. That as you seek the Lord, you're able to fulfill your role as a wife, able to fulfill your role as a mother. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not seeking the Lord, not walking with the Lord in the way that he is calling you to go, you won't. That's just simple. You young people in the room, you who aren't married, who are in school, as you seek the Lord, you are able to discern what God has for your life. Again, the number, like, number one question I got doing youth ministry and college ministry, number one and number two, what am I supposed to do with my life and who am I supposed to marry? Like, those are the two top questions. And if you want to know the answer to that question, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Read your Bible. Pray. Seek Him out. If you are seeking the Lord and seeking to be where He wants you, well, you don't have to worry about it because God will lead you. He'll lead you and you'll be able to lead those in your life, those that you are called to be an example to. And as the church globally, locally, this is also the same. We are the most effective in the world as we are submitted to the Lord's. The church is the church. The church does what the church is called to do as the church submits to the Lord and follows his word. 
as the church reads his word and sticks with his word, not our own opinion, not our own thoughts, our own preferences or desires, but as we stick with the word of God and we stick with what he says, we are able to live in the way that he's called us to. And the the church is called, friends. We are called on mission to live with and for the Lord and to show him in this world. And we are able to do that as we submit to his lead. We have to be following him. We have to be in the place that God is calling each and every one of us. And if we aren't, if we won't, then we're not able to lead and live as Christ desires. And that's a very simple thing. Again, it's elementary. If you're where God has you, that's the right spot. If you're not, then that's not the right spot. It's elementary. It's simple. But we have to understand it. And we have to apply it. And as Jacob is back where God desires for him to be, we see that he continues to live life. And the chapter ends out with really some practical notes there of the family of Jacob being highlighted. Just like in our families, there's life, there's birth, there's death that's involved. Let's finish up the chapter together, picking up in verse 16. As it says, And they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had a hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were, were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. And then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, uh, or Kirjath Abra, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. And now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last, and he died was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob, they buried him. Such a cool thing to see the two of them do that. As we finish out this chapter here, again, practical things that we see, and also to completing there the, the, the 12 sons of Israel being born. We see the death of Rachel. She has a hard labor as she gives birth. And as she dies, we see that she is told she's going to have a son. She names him Ben-Oni, but Jacob changes his name to Benjamin. We see there in verses 21 through 22 that Reuben, this other son, again, of, of Jacob and Leah, well, he goes and he has sexual relations with Bilhah. You'll remember that as Laban gave Rachel to Jacob, that he also gave the maidservant Bilhah to Rachel. And so as mom dies, well, we see that he goes and has sexual relationships with her. And this is another thing that is going to come up in Genesis chapter 49. We're not going to touch on it tonight, but understand that this sin here that Reuben walks in, it has repercussions, not just for him, but also for his tribe. And we see there in verses 23 through 26, the naming of the 12 sons of Jacob, and then we have the death of Jacob's father Isaac there in verses 27 through 29. And again, I love that we see there that Jacob and Esau both, that they bury his father. And that we see again this reconciliation of Jacob and Esau carried out. Now, as we get to chapter 36, I am going to, again, assign you to read that on your own. And the reason for that is this. 
What we have in Genesis chapter 36 is a genealogy of Esau. We have a, a listing out of the family of Esau. And this is a good chapter for us to read because, again, as we read the Bible, we know that everything in the Bible is there on purpose. However, we're not going to study it corporately because, quite frankly, all that we have with most of this is what we see right here. There's not a lot to elaborate on. We know that Esau goes on to father the Edomite nation. They're going to intertwine quite often with Israel throughout Israel's history. We see them pop up oftentimes in a way that is, that is obnoxious for Israel. But we see this, this line of Esau. It is listed out here in chapter 36. And so I'm going to leave you to read that on your own. And we are also tonight going to be skipping chapter 37. And here is why. Chapter 37 begins the story of Joseph. Joseph is that fourth great man that we are going to be studying as we study the book of Genesis. And we are going to start looking at the life of Joseph next week as we study here on Wednesday nights. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to skip there the starting of the story of Joseph. And we're going to read here and unpack this story, this, this really kind of a parenthetical chapter, if you will, that seems parenthetical because as you start Joseph in chapter 37, in chapter 38, you immediately get this episode with Judah and Tamar that we're going to talk about in a moment. And so for continuity's sake of the story of Joseph, we're going to skip 37 tonight, we're going to read 38, and the next week we'll have a more succinct story of the, of the events following Joseph's life as we study. So if you are okay with that, that is what we're going to do. And if you're not, well, that's still quite honestly what we're going to do. So Genesis chapter 38 is where we're going to be picking up this evening as we finish and as we read. And this story, again, that we read is one of those that is kind of, un, kind of weird. I mean, be really honest with you. It's another reason why if you have a child, you don't want questions to be asked on the way home. Now's a good time. Again, another chance to get them out of the room. But again, if you don't mind the questions, I don't mind them asking the questions. So we're going to read this entire chapter and then we will together unpack it. And I may make some comments as we read so as to help us have clarity as we do so. But Genesis chapter 38, for you note takers, it lets us know of an episode with Judah and Tamar. Again, the four sons of Leah tonight, they, uh, or the four first sons of Leah, they uh, each have a moment this evening. And it says in verse 1, that it came to pass at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah, and he was at Shezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Just ended him right there. No explanation, just he was wicked, so he's dead. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. And we're going to stop there to make a clarification. Within this culture and something that's going to be lined out within the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, you can jot down Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10, something what is going to become become to be known as the Leverite marriage, where if a, if a man died before providing sons to his wife, 
It was the duty of his brothers to marry her and to give her sons. And the child was considered the son of the deceased father and kept the bloodline going, kept the, the line going on. And so as Ur is killed by the Lord here because of his undisclosed wickedness, well, Onan, the second brother, well, he is now next in line to marry Tamar and to have children with her. But we see in verse 9 that Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And so it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Two things here. Onan, as he is called upon to fulfill this, this duty as the younger brother, as he's there to give um, an heir to his deceased brother, understand what we see here. And the reason that the Lord killed him is that Onan, well, he, he refused to seriously regard the responsibility to, the father, to father descendants for his dead brother. And we see within this that he was more than willing to walk in the act, into the sexual act with Tamar. But when it came time to walk in the responsibility that he was supposed to be doing, well, he, he, he declined that. And as such, the Lord killed him. And so we see that as he was supposed to give Tamar a son, he would have to support, he would be considered to be the son of Ur. He was fine with the pleasure, but he wasn't fine with the commitment. And so the Lord saw that as not something to be tolerated and he died. And we see Tamar, well, she is, you could say, to put it plainly, locked up, if you will, to wait for Sheila, to wait for him to get older, which quite honestly would have been for life, given the perceived age of Sheila, Tamar would have been doomed to widowhoods. And so what we see in verse 12 is it says that now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in the open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. Then Judah saw her, and he thought that she was a harlot, because she had covered her face then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, I will, give me, will you give me a pledge till I send it? And then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Understand these would be marks of identity. You could say uh, in our modern terms, Give me your, your license and registration, if you will. And so it says, there's your signature cord, your staff is in your hand. Then she gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand to his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So then he asked them into the place saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. So Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat and you have not found her. So it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. 
And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as she drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, reading this, in its entirety, is not just to get it out of the way so that next week we can focus on Jake, on Joseph. But understand the reality is there's consistent themes that we see upheld through this chapter that have been carried through the text tonight. We see the consistent theme of the people of God, again, not being where they should be. Judah here, as he's marrying this woman from Canaan, understand that he's going out of the line of what we've seen uh, in the pattern of the men of God, of the men following the people of God do so far. You remember with Abraham speaking there of a bride for Isaac, he said, I don't want to take, we don't need to take a woman from Canaan, go back to my homeland. And the same thing for Jacob. Rebecca comes to Isaac and says, hey, let's not let him take a wife from the land of Canaan, send him back to my father's land. And so what we see here is this pattern. It's really a pattern that's going to be honed in and made official for the nation of Israel, that they're not to intermarry or intermingle with the Canaanites. And so Judah here, marrying this gal from Canaan, well, he's not in a place where he should be. And because of not being where he should be or having his family where they should be, we see some issues. That's been a consistent theme tonight. Again, if you are not where God has you or has called you to, it's in the wrong place. But there's another consistent theme from tonight, that of the four oldest boys, again, of Jacob, each one failing tonight in some way, and Judas failing, well, it's outlined for us here. And really, this is Judah's second, you could almost even say third, if he was one of the ones that went and plundered there the, uh, the land of Shechem. This is at least his second one, because he's involved in what we're going to see next week, where he's involved in the, in the, in the taking of, of Joseph and throwing him into the pit. He's also the one, however, who, who keeps him from being killed. He's the one who mentions, let's sell him into slavery. And next week, as we see Joseph getting sold into slavery, we're going to see that the sons of Jacob were in the land beyond where they were supposed to be. Joseph here, he's a part of it. And this consistent theme with Jacob and his sons Simeon, Reuben, Levi, and Judah all failing, it's a consistent theme that we see tonight and one that I'm so thankful that is in the Bible for us, though it's hard to read at times. Because what we see here, and we've already touched on this, that though they are not in the place where they should be, and I don't want to rehash that necessarily, what I do want to rehash is that though they are being in the wrong place, and we see that that has effects on their life as it can on ours, sin and consequences arise, though Judah is in the wrong place, and being in the wrong place affects us, getting back to the right place, getting back to the right place that God wants us and allowing God to work in our lives, even with consequences, because again, consequences are unavoidable. Allowing God to change and shape us can allow the grace of God to shine in our lives and allow the Lord to move us from failure to victory. And that's what we see wrapped up in Judah's story here. You see, with Judah, and this is going to be something that we see as we study the rest of the book of Genesis, and especially as we get to chapter 49, 
Whereas like Jacob, Jacob, as he's in Shechem, he has some issues. He has some big issues, consequences of his sin that play out for us. And we get to see the, the, the turnaround. We get to see the Lord speak there to Jacob and say, hey, get out of Bethel or get out of Shechem. Go to Bethel. You're not where you're supposed to be. We get to see the revival in his hearts. And with Joseph or with Jacob or Judah, all the J names, with Judah, what we get to see with him understand is that Judah, as he's with his brothers and they throw Joseph in the pits, that he's one who says, hey, let's not kill the guy. Let's just sell him off. And though we don't see it, there's going to be something that happens between that event, the event that we read here, all of which are egregious. They're horrible things that we see here. But somewhere between here and the end of Genesis, where we see them reconciled to their brother and blessed by Jacob, somewhere we are going to see the Lord got a hold of Judah's life. Somewhere, God gets a hold of Judah and works in his life to where when they visit Joseph in Egypt, and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil part of the story for you. They see Joseph. They don't know that it's Joseph. And Joseph, he sends them away with provision. But however, as he sends them away with provision, he plants some stuff in Benjamin's, or yeah, plants some stuff in Benjamin's sack and sends them away. And so they're like busted, like, oh, we look like we stole stuff. And so they go back and they seek to take care of things. And as Joseph there is ready to pass judgment upon them, still playing the part of the Egyptian official, well, it's Judah who steps up. It's Judah who steps up and intercedes for his brother, who puts his own, his own son on the chopping block, if you will, and intercedes for him. At the end of the book of Genesis, we see Judah had a change somewhere. And in fact, there in Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is blessing the sons of Israel, or cursing them rather in some ways, Judah is one who isn't condemned. Rather, he is blessed in a mighty way. And I point this out to you, and we'll see all of this again play out as we move through the text. I point this out as we skip around a bit tonight to see this consistent theme because each one of us here tonight, again, are created by the Lord for a purpose. Each one are created and saved to walk and to glorify the Lord and live for Him on mission. And each one of us tonight understand we are either following that direction, living in that place of obedience, or we're not. And as such, what we have before us are examples of what it looks like to do that and to walk out in the consequences and then also to get back on track and allow the Lord to lead us. And with Jacob and with Joseph, or Jacob and with Judah, excuse me, what we see is we see men who follow the Lord's, even from their failure. And tonight, if you're exactly where God desires for you to be, then praise the Lord, stay right there. But tonight, if you find yourself much like Jacob at the beginning and much like Judah here, if you find yourself in a place where you're not supposed to be, what we see with both Jacob and Judah is that if you are still alive tonight, that it's still a possibility for you to say, Lord, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but I want to be there. Lord, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I want to be there. And the Lord is so good in that as we acknowledge that and we seek to walk that out, that God is faithful. And God is faithful to help us and to move us forward and to see our life look different than it does right now. Again, we see with Jacob. He's a point, he's a point of example for us. As from this point, what we're going to see is with Jacob is as he has moved from disobeying the Lord and not going all the way from here on out, 
We see Jacob is nothing is in nothing but a good light and a surrender and obedience to the Lord. That's what Judah, it's the same thing. Judah, he's not where he's supposed to be next week with Joseph. He's not where he's supposed to be here with Judah and Tamar in this episode, this gross story that we have here. But what we know is that somewhere between now and the end, the Lord gets a hold of him. He submits to the Lord's, to where Judah is not cursed at the end, but yet he's blessed. And he's blessed even further because what we see, if you read the New Testament, Perez, well, he is in the genealogy of Jesus. Judah goes on to be that one from whom's tribe, the Messiah, the Savior of the world comes from. And I submit to you that's the case because, again, Judah, though he's not where he's supposed to be here, in the same way that we cannot be in places and spaces that we are supposed to be, he gets to where he needs to be. He gets to where God wants him to be. And the same thing is available for us, friends. Where tonight, perhaps you find yourself, and you need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves. Perhaps you find yourself tonight not in the place where God has called you. Perhaps you find yourself tonight struggling and holding on to a sin that you know God has said to deal with and to get out of your life. Perhaps you find yourself tonight in a relationship that is not God-honoring. That is not what the Lord has for your life. You're in a place, a vocation, whatever it may be. I don't know, you're in something, in some place. Your heart is not in line and in full submission to Him. But you being here, breathing, being alive, and hearing the Word of God, understand that you have the ability tonight to say, Lord, I know that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And even ask Him, ask the Lord, say, Lord, am I where I'm supposed to be? Like, is my life exactly where you want it to be right now? Because He'll be honest with you. If you read your Bible, if you seek the Lord, if you ask a brother or a sister who will be honest with you, one that searches and seeks out the Lord and asks them to be honest and they're honest with you, the Lord will speak to you in whatever way you seek Him. If you're seeking Him truly, He will speak to you. And if He lets you know that, hey, you know what? You haven't gone all the way. Hey, you're not where you're supposed to be. My friends, though sin has consequences that are unavoidable and we have to deal with, our life lived from this point on with God is a possibility. And the Lord desires that for each one of us. The Lord desired that for Jacob. He desired that for Judah. He desired for all of these, everyone that we see within the word of God who goes from a point of failure to victory, the Lord desired their repentance, desired their life to be surrendered. My friends, we have that opportunity and that call for us today. And so ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, as we read these stories tonight, though they're hard to read perhaps or hard to stomach, I don't know, it's the Bible, so it's all good. Ask the Lord to speak to you and to reveal to you tonight if you are where you're supposed to be, knowing that God is faithful to speak, knowing that God is faithful and wants to be faithful in your life to lead you out of a place where you're not supposed to be into a place where he desires for you, where he desires to lead you so that you can lead others, where he desires to lead you so that you can show the light of Christ to those that are around you. It is worth all of us tonight, individually and corporately, to ask the Lord to speak to us. And as he does, to surrender fully to him. As the Lord speaks to us, to respond to him and allow him to lead us wherever he would desire for us to go.